Amen to that. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. As we have worshipped you, we pray that we will continue to worship you, now in the understanding of your word. Holy Spirit, open our minds and our hearts to the truth we need to hear for ourselves today from your word. I pray this to your glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen. The year was 1973. To put some perspective to this, half of our staff wasn't even alive back then. They might have been a gleam in their mommy or daddy's eyes. I was a junior in college. The average price of gas was 40 cents a gallon. Eggs cost 45 cents a dozen. Rent averaged $175 a month. You could buy a Ford Galaxy, for those of you who don't know what that is, that was a car, a nice big car, for $3,883. You could buy a new house for $32,500, and the average income was $12,500. In 1973, the Sears Tower was finished, completed, tallest building in the world for 20 years. Skylab was launched, the first satellite space station, if you will, um, of the United States. And genetic engineering, barcodes, and fiber optics was being introduced. On the political front, There was the Paris Peace Accord, which brought an end to the Vietnam conflict, as those of us who grew up during that time knew it. Today it's referred to as the Vietnam War. And it brought home servicemen. Vice President Agnew resigned under conviction, and Gerald Ford, who was the Speaker of the House, replaced him. Eventually, Gerald Ford would become the President of the United States, when Richard Nixon would resign the following year. Watergate hearings began in 1973, and the Supreme Court ruled on a landmark case known as Road versus Wade, which legalized abortion. The decision by the Supreme Court sent a firestorm of controversy through our country, creating two Basic movements, one called pro-life and the other called pro-choice. Pro-life professed a child's right to life, while pro-choice professed a woman's right to an abortion. The decision was unpopular, except in cases where the mother's life was in danger. And while laws have been enacted ever since at state level, they have been challenged by pro-choice each step of the way. Today is National Sanctity of Life Sunday. On January 13, 1984, Ronald Reagan made a proclamation designating January 22nd, that was the 11th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, 
as the first national sanctity of life day. Ever since the churches throughout the United States have observed the third Sunday in January as Sanctity of Life Sunday. Generally, it is a Sunday when churches teach against abortion. Most recently, evangelical churches have began, begun to expand the pro-life position beyond that of abortion, suggesting a wider biblical understanding of what it means to be pro-life. Essentially, it is our big idea today, and that is this. To be pro-life is to choose life based upon God's word. To be pro-life is to choose life based upon the word of the creator who gives all life. To do so is to address the social ills. It calls us to protect the vulnerable and the marginalized, to feed the hungry and to shelter the homeless, to stand against racism and discrimination against the stranger and the immigrant, to apply principles based upon biblical compassion and justice. In November of that very same year, when Reagan signed the proclamation, a bill passed, and the president signed it, that on the third Monday in January, it would be a national holiday celebrating the life and work of civil rights leader and activist, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. It seems fitting that the holiday celebrating his work and the National Day of Observing the Sanctity of Human Life, both should be together on this weekend. Now, I want you to know that it was Pastor Tim's deepest desire to be here today to preach to all of you and to teach to all of you. And he is home, resting, and that's a good thing. Um, but it was his desire that you would hear from him on Sanctity of Life Sunday. And I want you to know that he will speak to this important issue to our congregation after Easter. So just keep that in mind. And keep praying for him. Pray for Sarah. She's got put up with him. He's there all the time. <laughs> no. Do pray for her. I'm just joking about that. One last thing I want to say, having been in the pulpit for a long time, dealing with sanctity of life issues in church, dealing with the whole issue of abortion, statistics tell us that 24% of all women in the United States have had an abortion. Throughout the United States today in churches, there are women sitting here, even in this church, likely this morning, who have had an abortion. We need to have compassion and understanding toward them. Many times when I talk to women, they have told me how they didn't realize 
the damage they were doing. They didn't realize the decision they were making. They didn't have God's word so fluent and such a basis for their life. I want to say to all of us today that God's word promises some things that are very important before we even begin this. They promise, God promises that his mercies are new every morning. God promises that he is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins to a thousand generations. No sin is too small, nor too great, nor too repetitive that God cannot forgive it. This is the gospel. And all of us are in desperate need of it. Now, having laid that foundation, I would invite you to open up your Bibles or go into your um, phones or electronic devices, whatever, and uh, turn to Romans 8, 18 through 25. It is our primary text for this morning. In Romans, Paul is making a systematic presentation of the gospel. And in particular, in this section of Romans, he is moving from salvation to the present ministry of God's Spirit to an understanding of future glory. In our text, there are two different ages There is the present age and there is the age to come. The present age is now. It is characterized by sin, wrongdoing, brokenness, decay, suffering, and death. All of the effects of sin and the fall. The future age, he refers to as glory. It is the age to come when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. When the resurrection will occur. When the restoration of what was lost in the fall is complete. And there is perfect harmony once again between God and his creation, people, and between people and one another. Let's read the text now if we can. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Our text begins with a very general 
comparison between the two ages. The present age, filled with suffering that has resulted from sin. And what we are told is that this suffering is worth enduring for what we will find in glory as we wait for it. And in fact, we are told it is not a one-to-one ratio. Like one ounce of suffering will produce one ounce of glory. But rather, it is incomparable. For instance, one one ounce of suffering might produce a thousand pounds of blessing and glory. Worth waiting. Then, in verses 19 to 23, he describes the present age as a time of waiting in futility. This is the day we are living in, waiting in futility. He says that creation is waiting, eagerly and earnestly waiting for glory to come. And glory, he says, is characterized by the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. What does that mean, the revealing of the sons and daughters of God? Well, it means the resurrection. It means the judgment has taken place. And in the book of life, all has been parted out. And those who are in the book of life now receive a resurrection body and live in the new heaven and the new earth with God and one another. In verses 20 through 21, we are told that this futility was not because creation did something wrong, but rather that it was subjected to futility. And the implication here is that God caused creation to also fall along with humanity. And God did this for a purpose and for a time. But ultimately, God has a goal. That of restoration. That of reversing the curse. That of redeeming humanity and creation. What is this hope? The hope of glory. The age to come. When there will be shalom with God, and shalom with others. In verse 22, he says that in this present time, all creation is groaning together like a mother might groan while giving birth for the life of her child to be born. It is such a positive groaning, but also such a longing in groaning And such an intense kind of groaning. How are we to understand creation? Creation is all the world. Creation is all that God has created and all that has been created in that. All is groaning to be delivered from bondage to sin and separation and suffering and decay and death. Groaning 
for life, groaning to be restored. Who among us does not groan to be restored? But the text also notes that we groan for life in glory too, although we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean that we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit? What it means is that we have a down payment, a guarantee that glory is coming. It is the promise of resurrection. It is the power of God made available to us through the Spirit that the ascended Jesus has sent to all who profess what he has done upon the cross and to follow him as Lord. Then in verses 24 and 25, it encourages us to rest and wait in this hope of the future to come. It says, for this hope we were saved, meaning the hope and glory, when the sons and daughters of God will be revealed. The redemption of our bodies, the resurrection. And we are encouraged to wait in that hope patiently and with confidence, even though we cannot see it now. It is coming. It is coming. Now, I want to stop here for a moment. And I haven't expanded this particular text, but I want us to understand that we are living in a futile time. And this is a futile world. And the life that we're living is futile. It has been subject to sin and suffering and decay and illness and death. And so when we look at how we do life and we consider how we make our decisions based upon that, most of us have to admit that culture, culture has more influence on us than the Word of God. The people around us have more influence on us than the Word of God. Few of us have grown up under the teaching of the Word of God for our entire life and subjected ourselves to it as much as we have allowed ourselves to be subjected to television and news media, and other kinds of things, and conversations from people, and philosophies expressed by educators and others. That's not to say that all of them are wrong. But it is to suggest 
that this is a time when we need to look at the things that are based upon the eternal principles of the Creator who created all things for His glory and that all things would live in harmony with Him and with one another. And that after it fell, God had a restoration plan to restore it and bring it back. And at the center of that plan was the Messiah, Jesus, who would give his life as an atoning sacrifice. And we see throughout the Bible the unfolding of that restoration plan. And it is to that that I want to talk about our application. It is to the understanding that God calls us to do life differently than the world. It is, in one sense, to deal with this truth. We are either part of the problem in this world or we are part of the solution. And I'm not suggesting here that what we do will bring the age of glory to come to pass, because it won't. Only God can do that. But we can participate with God in this life and not make things worse for others, but rather better for others as we live according to the holy laws of God the principles within his word that he calls us to. What does it mean then to live with the hope of glory in this present age of futility? It means, number one, we're sinners. It means, number two, we live in a fallen world. People, creation, nature, the culture, human institutions, they're all subject to sin and the effects of sin. It means that injustice and harm and suffering and evil are often perpetuated by the choices we make or the wrong thinking we endure or the actions that we take. But it also means that the Creator has a plan to reverse the curse of the sin and to restore everything in the age to come in glory. While we are helpless to bring about that transformation, God is and God will. And in the meantime, we are to live in hope, to live with hope, drawing upon the power of God, the Holy Spirit, who will help us to choose life by living holy lives. Living in this hope calls us to live out what it means to be pro-life, I'm not talking about pro-life as a political narrative, but as the Bible defines it. Consider what the Bible teaches. God has this unfolding plan for restoration. And he calls a people to himself, the Jews, and he is going to use them to make himself known to the world and to bring the Messiah, who is the centerpiece of this restoration, through them. So that all might be restored. And in the process, he brings them into the promised land. And this is what is said to them 
as they stand on the precipice of entering it. Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. In the present, God calls us as his people to do likewise, to choose life living obedient lives in the redemptive power manifest in the Holy Spirit. As we choose obedience and holiness, God's ways instead of the ways of culture and the world, we also make God known to the world. This is our witness to the world. This is what God desires from us. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is what we are praying for. This is what it means to be pro-life biblically. This is where evangelical Christians have expanded that concept. It is based... Well, let me say this. I am not advocating social justice. And I am not advocating a social gospel. Far from it. What I am advocating is that we would be gospel people, allowing God's word of biblical compassion and justice to guide us in how we relate to others and deal with the social ills and the futility that we experience in this present age. At the heart of biblical compassion and justice is the gospel, the outpouring of God's grace and undeserved mercy through Jesus. And based upon that very principle, to be gospel people is to know that what we have received from God is what we are to pass on to others. Consider what Jesus taught in the parable of the unforgiving servant, Matthew 18. Jesus said, Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. You should have had that mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. God's concern and kindness and mercy calls for us to respond in the same way toward others that God has responded to us. To respond to the same way of people in need as God has responded to us in our needs. We are to stand up against violence toward the unborn. Stand up against abuse and poverty and hunger and homelessness. 
stand up against racism and discrimination of all sorts, even against aliens and immigrants, against homophobia, sex trafficking, and all suffering from the ills of this futile and present age. I'm not suggesting a political position here or stance. Just that as gospel people, we would pass along what we have received from God and work to be God's answer to the hurting, suffering world. If not us, then who? Who will stand up for the abused and the oppressed? Who will stand up to love people regardless of their sexual orientation? Who will stand up to help those who are being exploited sexually? Who will help those who do not have enough food or shelter? Who will stand up against violence toward the unborn? Who will stand up against discrimination and advocate for people of all races and ethnicities? Who will live in the kingdom ways of God, acting like sons and daughters of God, showing compassion to creation and the world and all humanity? Who will choose life and advocate for life in this present age until glory comes, if not us? I'm going to say a hard word, but it's a word for us. It's a word I don't even want to say, but it's an important word. We are either part of the solution or we are part of the problem. If we ignore what the Bible teaches, if we ignore showing mercy and grace to others, if we ignore loving people and meeting them in their needs, then we are part of the problem because we allow it to continue unabated. Who, if not us? It's a question I hope we will all take to heart today and bring to the Lord in prayerful consideration, realizing that to choose life is to choose God's way. And to share with others what we have received from God is to choose God's way. And to live with all men and women as equals is to choose God's way. Before I wind this up, I do want us to hear the testimony of one family who has stepped into choosing life. I'm going to invite Kate and Lawrence Klaus to come up and tell their story. Thanks. They'll be gentle with you, I promise. Smile at them, everybody. Make them feel at ease. All right, so I'm just going to ask you guys some questions, and if you would answer them, that'd be great, okay? So how did you come to adopt the girls, and why did you adopt them? Well, um, since I was young, the idea of helping in an orphanage was something I dreamed of. I loved the idea of caring for children in need, and... um, that was part of what I had was was made up inside me, um, and at the time, Lawrence and I had two boys, and we were in the doctor's office when he announced we were having a third boy, and it was such a gift. But we were also wishing for a little pink in our house, um, 
And so there, that's when adoption began in our mind. But there were several roadblocks to, um, to adoption. Uh, one was our age. And um, the other one was that at the time, Lawrence was in transition uh, with his work. And so the idea of the fees of adoption and how that would all come to be was um, a little bit daunting, especially when we didn't know where our monthly income would be. Um, But we continued to pray, and we really believed that um, God reminded us of his love for the orphans and the widows. And we really felt like um, these children that are in foster care are today's modern-day orphans. And so we moved forward with that plan, hoping to foster to adopt. Um, What were and are the biggest challenges? Um, For those of you that don't know how the foster system works, um, I'm not going to go into any detail on that. But uh, anyway, it is a process. And uh, as part of the process, you get, uh, as a foster home, as foster parents, you get to pretty much choose uh, what what type of placements you're going to you're going to receive into your home and so when we sat down and started the process one of the things that our agency you know worked with us on was saying okay come up with that list of the things that uh, are are you know important to you and so kate and i talked about it we had a list of some things uh, age gender um, and some other minor issues that we that raised a great deal of anxiety for us And we ended up, uh, the other thing you'll find if you ever do anything with fostering is that uh, they tell you to make the list and then normally nothing on the list comes true. Um, And so our first placement, uh, uh, they actually got the gender and the age right, but uh, the other things that we had put on the list uh, weren't, basically weren't fulfilled. And what Kate and I found very early on was that these these things that we thought were going to be challenging to us, and again, they really were sort of minor little issues, but we had a lot of anxiety over it, Didn't, weren't, weren't an issue at all. Um, so that was one thing that uh, uh, was, was a real revelation to us. But um, what, what I think has come out now that uh, we, we've had the girls for, for so long, um, we... Uh, uh, again, as part of the foster program, you have to you have to go through some classes, and so we we took uh, we took these classes before we could be licensed. And I remember uh, several weeks in a row, we'd go to these classes, we'd see videos, and you would just experience and learn and be educated about sort of the worst things that you can imagine happening to children. And I remember sitting there thinking, I don't need to worry about that. We're going to get a baby. We're going, to get a, you know, we're going to get an infant. So these things that we're seeing aren't going to be an issue. How wrong I was. Um, the process, this five-year process uh, for us, uh, has left uh, two scarred and traumatized little girls. And uh, the result of that is that uh, we, you know, as, as parents, we have found that um, the challenge for us is that parenting them is very different than parenting our, our biologic children. The things that uh, make sense for our biological children don't make sense with the, with the girls. And, and so um, that's our biggest challenge is, is walking through that, that part of the process. Thanks. 
how does this connect in your mind with pro-life? You know, it should connect really quickly, and you asked us to do this, and then you asked that question, and that was the hardest question for me to answer. <laughs> and I sat on it for um, a couple of days and just asked God to show me. Um, and then as I was praying, a quote from a friend of mine that she gave me just this week came to mind. This is from Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It said, the great Jewish theologian, Martin Berber, described the healthiest of mature relationships between human, two human beings as an I-thou relationship. In such a relationship, I recognize that I am made in the image of God, and so is every other person. This makes them a thou to me. They have dignity, worth, and respect, and are to be treated with that same respect. I affirm them as being unique and a separate human being apart from me. So when I think of, when I, be, when I first thought of the sanctity of human and life, my first thought was pro-life, against abortion. But as I've begun to see it in a broader picture, as you just preached, I think it's the way we treat every day. Um, our interactions with people, whether you're in the store or your car or in your own household. Um, adoption is another step from that. It says, you matter to God and you matter to me, and I choose to love you regardless of your past, and I believe that you have a future. Um, and it also brings us in touch with the understanding how if we've chosen God as our Savior, that he has adopted us. So I think adoption is truly at the heart of who God is. Thanks. How can the church uh, come around and support you as an adoption family? Um, well, I think you have. I think that the answer is that you have. You have walked this very long and difficult journey with us. Um, you have prayed for us. You have supported us. Um, and we will only know on the other side of heaven all that you have done for us. Um, I have been so blessed by uh, Jay Necklov and Janet Jenkins downstairs as they have formulated a plan that really helps our girls succeed downstairs, understanding that sometimes they're just totally emotionally overloaded and they just need to regroup and break from what's going on in the class. Um, and you have not judged us. When our chaos overtakes the lobby or your quiet room um, or it keeps us from coming to events, you have said, how can I help us? How can I help you? Can I drive and bring your kids to your house for you? Um, and so as you continue to think, I have been praying um, this, James 1.5, for my life especially recently. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generally with, generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. So you can continue to pray that. I'm banking on that promise for us. Thanks. And lastly, what would you say to another family who might be considering adoption? You know, I, I usually don't go off script. As you, as you can see, we were already prepared with the questions. Um, but I... As, as Craig preached, uh, something came to my mind that I wanted to uh, add to the answer to this question. It's actually not uh, specifically to an individual or that might be considering adoption, but to you as the church. You know, 
uh, Craig just preached that uh, in God's view, life is priceless. And I want, uh, you know, I was thinking about that. I think we in our society today, we have to guard that very carefully. Um, I recall years ago hearing a, a uh, sermon on the sanctity of life. Um, and it, it left a very lasting impression on me. Um, unlike most of the sermons, that uh, messages you hear on sanctity of life, which, again, really raise up this idea of, of how precious life is, this particular speaker talked about how does a society get to a place where they lose that view of, of the sanctity of life. And... and he used the um, World War II um, example of the Nazis uh, as, as an example. It was very poignant because um, he, he educated uh, his listeners to the fact that uh, the Nazis started by making very small little steps in devaluing life. And so the first uh, people that they actually came after were those that were born with genetic uh, issues, those that were handicapped, uh, those that, uh, what I will, for the purpose of right now, just say sort of the vulnerable population. My daughters would fall in that category of the vulnerable population. And, uh, you know, so my message, I guess, uh, to, to answer this question to the church is let's really value um, you know, life, and let's guard that with, with all intensity and purposes. To, to anybody that is out there that may be considering um, adoption or fostering or, or something like that, this is, this is what I would have to tell you. Obviously, everybody's uh, situation is different, and there would be very specific uh, advice that uh, uh, you perhaps are looking for would want. Uh, what I'm going to tell you here is just sort of a general uh, thing. But in, in our five-year, in, in Kate's and my five-year journey, um, you know, multiple times I have shared, uh, whether it be in a work setting or with an acquaintance or somebody, this is our journey. We're walking this path. We're, we're working to adopt these girls. Uh, we're doing this fostering and so forth. And almost without exception, the response that I get from uh, when I told people that was, oh, you must be really special people. And, and, you know, I always wrestle with how to respond to that because I know that we're not. In fact, Kate and I are, are just ordinary people. And, uh, you know, if, if any of you were a fly on the wall in our home at any given time, you would see how woefully deficient uh, we really are in this thing called parenting. Um, so, uh, but, you know, with that in mind, I, I reflect on all the blessings that this process has brought to our family. And I think about how many times God has affirmed this and, uh, and blessed uh, us. And so, my, again, if there's anybody out there that is interested considering this, I'm sure that God would do the same for you. So thank you for the opportunity to share with you. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Thanks, Lawrence and Kate. Really appreciate that. Wouldn't it be something if in our church more of us became foster parents or felt the pull of God to adopt? I don't know what God's placing on anybody's heart, but I hope that we're all open to whatever God would lead us to. Today, as I said, is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And um, one thing we can do to respond and make a difference is something that is going to occur during the closing song. As many of you know, one of our local ministry partners is Karis. And Karis is a ministry that works with women who have unplanned pregnancies. And it works to help them actually have choices other than abortion. And um, in December, they came out and spoke to us about their ministry. They do that every year. And then we have a diaper drive. And this year we had over 5,000 diapers that were brought uh, to Karis here just a week or two ago. And uh, we'd like to do a free will offering to Karis today. So during this closing song, whatever money you put in the offering plate that is passed, it will go directly to Karis. And if God places that on your heart, then I invite you to give and give generously. What I will ask you to do now, though, is to join with me in a closing prayer. And I'd like us to pray um, together in all earnestness, if we can. Lord, you are good and gracious, and you have shown us such mercy. Help us to be people of mercy and grace. Help us, Lord, to be able to choose life, to live life in the way that you've set forth, so that rather than participating in the futility of this present moment, we might, Lord, join you in being part of your solution. I pray that you will speak to each and every one of us. Help us, Lord, to examine our hearts in this matter. On this particular weekend, as we consider sanctity of life and care us, help us to be generous. As we consider the birthday of Martin Luther King, help us to be mindful that there are people being discriminated against and that we should stand up for them. Help us, Lord, to be people who care about what you care about. And I thank you for Kate and Lawrence and for their testimony today and for how they as a family are choosing life and being a witness to the world. And I pray that our church will be a witness to the world in a powerful way. Lord, I pray for a swift healing of pastor. I pray you watch over his family particularly and help them, Lord, as they they have to pick up all of the ends, especially Sarah, Lord. Give her extra strength. 
And we just thank you now and pray all of this in Jesus' name. And we all agreed and said. We're going to.